Father in heaven, there's a lot of concerns in the world right now. There's tons of things that we can either be afraid of or throw our fears in your lap and leave them there. Those are our choices. We can either trust you or not. We can either be obedient to you or not. We can either believe in you or not. Those are our choices all the time, everywhere, and everything. This morning, we'd like to read your word and believe you. We'd like to apply it to our lives. We'd like to reflect on how marriage reflects on the relationship between Christ and the church. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you'd make us each sensitive to your word and receptive to your word, that you would feed on it and grow thereby, and that we would become the men and women of God you called us to be in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's one of those just happens sort of things. Uh, We have been going through the Gospel of John for I don't know how long, at least a dozen or so messages, and we've finally gotten to John chapter 2. Last week we talked about the reason for miracles, what miracles are for. Why does God even do that? Why does he ever override the natural system? And funny though, right at the weekend when Brennan and Addie are getting married, we're talking about the marriage feast at Cana. So let's talk about what do we know about marriage? Well, there's a lot of scriptures that have to do with that. The one we just happen to be reading in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, which I'm going to read here shortly, really doesn't tell us a great deal about marriage. There's a little bit we can gain from it, but it's a central point that actually gets cited in marriages all the time because Jesus was at this marriage. So let's read it. The third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Pardon me. got really cold this morning. I couldn't get warm, and that starts my nose running. His mother said unto the servants, Whatsoever he says unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus said unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now and bear it to the governor of the feast. And they bore it. When When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants who drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, And said unto him, Every man at the beginning sets out good wine, and when men have well drunk, in other words, they can't tell the difference anymore, they bring out the cheap stuff. But you've kept the good wine till now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. And that's the key verse that we talked about last week, that he manifested his glory and his disciples believed on him. This is the reason for miracles. But what do we know about marriage? Well, from this passage, not a whole lot. There's some examples of good marriages in the Bible. There's some examples of bad marriages. Uh, We see the origin of marriage clear back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. It says, I'm reading from the King James, says, The rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, 
flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. He had been in the process of naming all the animal kingdom creation and got to the end of the line and realized that everybody else got a mate, not, not me. And God made this woman, brought him to the man. He says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my f flesh. And he finishes the naming by saying, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And God's comment on it. I always wondered if it was Adam or God talking. Well, Jesus said it was God talking. We're going to read that. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now, that right there, this, this passage is fairly key in understanding what God thinks about marriage. What we're looking at is marriage as a concept. There's a lot of passages in the scripture that we read regarding marriage as a concept. And it points out the fact that it was not only designed by God, we just read that one. It was blessed by God, it was ordained by God. We find out that it's holy to God, it's important to him. And I'd like to see, I'd like to explore, why is it so important to God? Is it just a cultural thing? You know, uh, I mean, if you read the newspapers for years, you'd think that Ann Landers invented marriage. Everybody asks her about it. Uh, if you go to the governor, governor, government, they seem to think that they invented marriage. You've got to get your license from them. And in many countries of the world, the government will not recognize church marriages and in some of them, the church won't recognize government marriages. So in Mexico, for instance, if you want to be married in both the eyes of the state and the church, you've got to get your wedding in both. Uh, in Switzerland, where Stephanie is, weddings are only before the judge or whoever. The church weddings are, you can have a party there if you want, but that's not even considered a marriage. The government is in control of marriage. It's kind of a sad thing because they didn't invent marriage. They didn't ordain marriage. They didn't bless marriage. See, they tax it. But they didn't do any of the above, and God did. It's holy to him. <clears throat> so this passage we just read in Genesis is cited in virtually every Christian wedding as evidence that marriage is God-ordained and blessed by God, etc. But we, we very seldom discuss why it's so important to him, why it's something special to him. What about a bad example of marriage? Well, the, the woman at the well, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but if you read John chapter 4, where we, we always talk about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well outside the city of Sychar, had this conversation with Jesus, and at one point she was asking him a question, and he finally says, go get your husband and come back. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, yeah, you're right, you don't. He says, the woman, uh, starting in verse 17, Again, reading from the King James, it says, The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had, past tense, five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. In that thou saidst truly. Okay, so what do we get from that? That shacking up together is not marriage. That there is such a thing as marriage. Now what we're going to find out is that what it takes to be married in any given culture varies wildly across the board. In some cultures, it's simply a statement of intent. In others, there has to be this huge, very, uh, I don't know what to call it, choreographed, uh, traditional you know, ceremony, or you're not considered married. In others, obviously, we've already said that the government has taken over. Um, but in no case is just living together constituting a legal marriage. 
Uh, there are some places that protect women by making laws that, for instance, it used to be in Idaho, I don't know if it's true anymore, but if you spent the night in a, in a room with a woman, she didn't have to prove anything happened. You were married, whether you like it or not. Okay, that was to protect women. Uh, there's others where, uh, well, it just varies a lot. Uh, <clears throat> there's one in particular, I know at least, where if you persuade, if you lure a woman to go away with you and she goes, it doesn't even matter if you never got out of sight of her family, you're married. Uh, I read of a, a missionary's account of a situation, I believe in New Guinea, but it might have been Erie and Jaya. Uh, the young man, the girl he was interested in, he was pretty sure she was interested in him, he crept through the jungle underbrush to the garden where her mother and the girl were working. And he beckoned to her. She saw him, and she went to him. And before they could get out of sight, the mother saw them and went screaming after them, furious, caught up with them, beat the snot out of both of them with her digging tool. But she went back to her garden alone. Why? Because they were married. That's all it took in that, in that culture. If he called her away and she went, they were, they were a couple. And there's not a thing that woman could do about it. Yeah, she savaged them real good. She beat them up, both of them, and cursed them up and down. But there was nothing she could do about it. She went back to her garden by herself, continued tending her sweet potatoes. Her little girl got married. Okay. See, that's a hard thing. But there's a hidden purpose for marriage, and this is what we start to glimpse the why God considers it <clears throat> so holy. This Genesis passage that we read about God bringing the woman to the man, and he says her name shall be called woman because she was taken out of man, etc. That passage is also quoted by God in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. If you want to turn there, you can. <clears throat> I'm reading from King James. You can read from whatever Bible you're comfortable with. Ephesians 5, <clears throat> 21 through 33, mostly is telling us how husband and wife ought to relate to one another. Starting in verse 21, it says, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, now it's talking to the husbands. Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever, ever yet heeded his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord of the church. For we are members of his body, that is Christ, of his flesh and of his bones. And now he quotes that Genesis passage. He says, For this cause shall a young man, uh, excuse me, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And then he comments on it. Remember, this is God's word. This is not just Paul's opinion. This is God commenting on his own scripture. He says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, 
and the wife see that she reverence her husband. What was the point of that? There's a clue here as to why marriage is so important to God. When was this thing, the original thing he's quoting, the, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. When was that stated originally? It was at the creation, right? This is before sin came into the world. Jesus was prepared to be the bridegroom. Yeah, that one. The bridegroom, I did get Brennan's and Addie's names right. Honest. On the way home, I'd been practicing before the marriage, and I, I said something about Braddy and Anna, and I thought, oh my goodness, please, no. <clears throat> Jesus was prepared to be the bridegroom before the bride existed. This is thousands of years before the bride existed. We know that he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, verse 8 says that he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, that he was slated to be our blood sacrifice for sin before humans were created. It doesn't say from the fall of man. It says from the creation of the world, from the foundation of the world. He was prepared. He, he was already committed to being our blood sacrifice for sin before sin came into the world, before there were humans in the world. And he was prepared to be the bridegroom. It was a picture of Christ in the church before the church ever could exist. That's why it's holy to God. That picture was prepared before the human race got started. <clears throat> so we usually use this passage and other similar passages to teach about the marriage relationship. That's a good thing to do. That's what it's intended for. That's, why, that's exactly what he was doing. But the almost hidden value here is that it's a picture of Christ in the church. And that's why it's so important to God. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, God reiterates and talks about those same things again in a much shorter version. I'll get to it here. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, talking again about the husband-wife relationship. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. That would help. Here we go. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, if you got a scalawag for a husband who's not obeying God, it says they also may without the word be won by the conversation of their wives. This is not an excuse to marry an unsaved person. It's telling you if you get saved and you, your husband is not, then your behavior can lead him to Christ. He's going, to need, he's going to need to find out about Jesus. There's no question about it. But if he doesn't have that behavior, he's going to be driven away. We're going to see more about this. He says that they, without the word, they may be won by the conversation or the way, of, the way of life. That's what the old English word conversation means. While they behold your chaste conversation, way of life, coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of, of great price. And we're going to see that that ties in with Proverbs chapter 31, where it talks about this, this wonderful woman, says a, a virtuous woman who can find her price is far above rubies. We read that and we think, well, that's a pretty heavy, bar, high bar to set for women. We're going to talk about that. It's not 
quite just exactly what the eye would first tell you. It is for after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands. Remember, this is a picture of Christ in the church. God says so. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, so long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Now he speaks to the husbands. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, or in an understanding way, giving honor unto the wife as an unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. I've lost my place. Here it is. What happens if you don't? Next phrase, that your prayers be not hindered. There's a result if you're not doing what God says in marriage. It's going to affect your relationship with Jesus himself. Interesting. These two are really tied together. Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren. So the, the, the love we have been talking about is the agape love. Now he's saying that the brotherly love's got to be there too, with affection for one another. Be pitiful, compassionate, concerned for the other person's needs. Be courteous, polite. There's never an excuse for being rude to your spouse. Not rendering evil for evil. You ever feel like, oh, I'm going to give him a taste of his own medicine? Nope. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. By the way, the railing he's talking about here is not the kind you hang on to so you don't fall down the stairs. It means saying ugly things and just berating someone. No, it's not okay. Not rendering railing for railing. But contrary was blessing. Knowing that you are there too called that you should inherit a blessing. That's really interesting. Because see, what we're starting to see here is that the picture of Christ in the church is a two-way relationship. When we choose to respond to one another rightly in marriage, as God teaches, we're demonstrating the holy relationship between Christ and the church to everyone else, <clears throat> believers and unbelievers. Now consider the impl implications of that. It goes two ways. It means that not only the love and respect that are spoken of here are supposed to be in our relationship with our spouse, it also gives us an idea of what we should expect from Jesus and what, what he expects from us. That he does expect us to love and respect and, and worship him for who he is. Pardon me, I'm getting the hiccups. It also shows us that we can expect that love and care and compassion from him. We've brought that up in church a number of times that in Psalm, I believe, 103, it says that, that he sees us with compassion and pity and mercy as the father sees his little children. He says he knows our frame, that we are but dust. He knows our weakness, and he's compassionate toward us. He's not expecting wonderful things out of us unless he does it through us. In fact, that's the only way it ever happens. There's another thing involved. There's a partnership between us and Jesus. We think, what? How am I a partner with Jesus? Well, a husband-wife's relationship, you're a partner with your wife, a partner with your husband. And if a husband and wife are building their home together, a house, the wife's excited about it because she sees her house coming together. And she and her husband don't see it the same. He's making sure it's secure, it's sound, it's code compliant, it's 
whatever. Everything works right. It's watertight. It's all the wiring is safe. The plumbing is safe. And he's proud of his creation. She's looking forward to making this thing a home. No, I don't think I'm speaking out of line when I say that most men don't have much imagination when it comes to making a house a home. That's not the way we think. Not usually. Some guys do. Some are real. Some people are real good at it. But I know in my in my case, if Anne wasn't there making it a home, it would look like a hunting cabin or a, a lodge or a or a workshop with a additional living space, you know, because that's that's the way I tick. See, but because of Anne's work and her influence and her touch. It is a home. It's a nice place to be, a nice place to come home to. That's why they call that kind of person a homemaker. It's not an insult. It's not a put-down. That is important. Well, how does that apply to the relationship with Jesus? Well, over in Ephesians 4, it says that he is building his house, but we are involved in the building thereof. He says in Ephesians 2, where it says that you are built together as a habitation of God through the Spirit. He's building it. And four, it says that, well, if I get to the right place, uh, ah, here we go. He says, speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into him in all things, verse 15, 415 which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies. That's us. We're supplying something in this. We're, we're using the gifts that God's given, and we're joining in partnership with him. He says, that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, there is no Christian that was designed to just sit on a pew. Okay, You're, you're designed to... to build the, the habitation of God. He says, uh, by according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, makes increase of the body unto the edifying, the building up of itself in love. This is the habitation of God that we're called to build with God. <clears throat> and it is a two-way relationship. We're excited because we're seeing the little bit of the building that we see here on earth and I don't mean this physical building that's not at all what it's talking about the, the people here are the habitation of God the Holy Spirit is living in each of you because Jesus washed away your sins at the cross and because you placed your trust in him from that moment the moment you placed your trust in his finished work at the cross you were made a part of the body of Christ you're part of the bride of Christ you're part of the temple of God it says over in in First uh, Peter, they're living stones spread all over the world and functioning as members of the temple of God, of the holy, of the habitation of God. Proverbs chapter fourteen, verse one gives a cautionary note, and please remember, as we're reading Old Testament and New Testament, God set up the relationship between husband and wife being a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, clear back in Genesis. So when you're reading about it in Proverbs, don't think it's just a pointing at women. That's not it at all. It's saying that we as the believers have a necessary relationship with the Lord. So one of them is in Proverbs 14.1. And of course these apply to humans too. But it says Proverbs 14.1 says, Every wise woman builds her house, builds up her, her household, her home, builds those relationships, makes it a stronger, more blessed 
place to live. It says, but the foolish woman plucks it down with her hands. It's possible for us to ruin those relationships. It's not just about women. It's about the church. We can ruin the relationships we have with one another, and in so doing, we tear down the habitation of God that we're supposed to be building. Okay. Can you do it in a home, a physical home? Sure you can. But keep in mind, this is a picture of Christ in the church. So when I read over in Proverbs 31, where it talks about this wonderful relationship that this woman has with her husband, it says, the heart of, uh, says uh, virtuous woman who can find for her worth is bar far above rubies, the heart of her husband to safely trust in her, and she will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. And it goes on with this long list of things that she's doing. If you keep in mind that that's a picture of Christ in the church, then you've got the opportunity to consider how the church is supposed to be pursuing the agenda of God that God has laid out for the church. And you can read in the New Testament and see what that agenda is. He does have something for us to do. And it does involve building up the habitation of God. It, it involves evangelism. It involves service. It involves pouring ourselves out for those around us and worshiping God and praying for one another and, and offering the, the, pray, the sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise. These are all part of what our relationship with him is supposed to be. Okay. And that thing in Proverbs chapter 31 is not just saying, okay, here's a perfect wife. Ladies, try to do that. No, that's not it at all. There's songs about it. Uh, Brent Lamb wrote a song called uh, Perfect Model of a P31, saying that his dad had told him that his mother was a perfect model of a P31. He says, don't you mean P38? He says, no, P31, Proverbs 31. And he was saying that his, his mom fulfilled that. Okay, that's great, but that's not everything. It is about our relationship with the Lord, too. God says he's building the church. He involves us in the building process, and he said that that which every joint supplies is what's strengthening and building up that habitation of God, that he's designed us, the church, to be for him. So why is marriage holy to God? Marriage is holy to God because it's a living demonstration of the relationship that he wants with every believer. We need to think about what we're demonstrating he says that we're to love one another, that we're to submit one to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're to see one another as fellow heirs of the grace of life in him. We're to love one another with the agape love in him. Now, God describes that love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. Probably all of you have read it. Probably some of you have memorized it. I'm reading for the King, from the King James, which is kind of problematic because he uses the word charity. Well, the reason for that is because there are different words in Greek for love. And the people who translated the King James used the word charity to set aside specifically the, the noun charity, to set aside the, the agape love. You can look it up in the Greek. It's the agape love all the way through here. So it's describing it. Keep that in mind as we're reading. It says, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. It's not envious. Charity vaunteth not itself. It's not boastful. Is not puffed up. It's not arrogant. Does not behave itself unseemly. Seeks not its own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. A lot of the newer translations say it keeps no wrong, excuse, keeps no record of wrong suffered. So you're not only not easily getting mad, but you've, when you've forgiven something, you also just set it aside. You're not dragging it up later to smack, smack somebody with it. 
does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and charity never fails. Agape love does not fail. Right. What I'd like you to notice about those things, and you can do all the study you want on what all those words mean, but what I'd like you to notice right now is that every single one of those is an action word. It's a verb, and not a single one of them have anything to do with emotions. Not a single one of them have anything to do with how you feel. Not a single one have anything to do with romance. It's not that kind of love. It has to do with action, which means that these are things you can choose to do, and it also means things you can fail to do. If you fail to do these things, then your love is not the agape love. Sorry, that's the fact. <clears throat> Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, tells us how to relate to one another, knowing that we're not perfect. It says that we are to forbear one another in love. Forbear means putting up with one another's you know, idiocy and whatnot. You know, what, what would you do that for? Put up with it. Forbear one another in love. It's not okay for you to judge your spouse for whatever screwball thing they just did or said. That's not okay. We're to forbear one another in love. We know we're not perfect. It also says we're to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God created that unity. All we can hope to do is keep that unity. We're to accept one another as the imperfect humans that we are. We're to look through the veil of human frailty and look to see the beauty of the person of Christ in your husband or wife. Accept one another for who they are and look to see the beauty of Christ in their life. God has chosen to set aside our sin, nailing it to the cross with Jesus. He no longer sees us as sinners. He sees you as his precious child, his precious saint. He sees you as holy. He sees you as a member of the bride of Christ. And you need to see your spouse in that same light. We need to see one another as members of the body of Christ in that same light. It's not just for husbands and wives. The next point is that marriage is permanent, just like your salvation. <clears throat> it's a picture of Christ in the church. Jesus assures us over and over in the Bible that our position in him is secure forever. My favorite, you've heard me quote it many times, John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him who sent me has, present tense, has everlasting life, shall not, future tense, shall not come into condemnation, but has crossed over. And it's not just past tense. It's not just past participle, past tense. It's past perfect tense. It means it's a completed action in the past that has a permanent result for the future. Your salvation is secure in Christ. There's many other passages. I'm not going to go into all of them today. I could do whole sermons on that. But if marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, then marriage is permanent, just like your salvation so we're never to leave one another. We're never to threaten to leave one another. You start saying, you do that, I'm going to leave you. That's not okay. That's a gross denial of the person of Christ for you to even say or think that kind of thing. Don't go there. We may be angry with one another sometimes. Hopefully it's quickly resolved and peace is restored. But we're never to even imply that we might sever the relationship as a result. That's what our vows are about in marriage. That's why we say, as long as we both shall live, or in some cases they say, until death do us part. Jesus will never abandon his saints, and we're never to abandon our loving commitment to one another. Jesus himself addressed the permanence of marriage in Matthew chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. By the way, this is where he says that it was God talking about, for this cause shall a young man 
leave his father and mother. <clears throat> Shall a man leave his father and mother? Jesus says, uh, he answered and said unto them, a reading from the King James, Matthew 19, 4 through 6, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, they're not two anymore, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. That's Jesus talking, folks. This isn't just some cultural thing. Jesus made that pretty clear, didn't he? Are there exceptions? Well, Jesus gave one exception. I'm going to talk about that just briefly. I want to point out something. Again, it goes back to the Greek words. I didn't bother to write them down this time. If somebody's interested, I can look it up for them. There are passages that seem to make exceptions. Jesus gave one. He said, except for the cause of fornication. All right. We mix up two words, fornication and adultery. Even in English, those are two separate words. Fornication is premarital sexual sin. Adultery is extramarital sexual sin outside of a marriage. because You're already married. One is called fornication in Scripture. The other is called adultery. You see, in their culture, betrothal or espousal or we call it engagement <clears throat> was such a serious agreement that it required a divorce to break that arrangement. You couldn't just give back the ring and say, I'm, we're done. Nope, that required a divorce. Sexual sin during the betrothal period, during the engagement, was called fornication, just as it would have been if it was completely apart from an engagement. But they weren't married yet. And that's the only exception Jesus gave. This, by the way, is the reason that Joseph was about to quietly divorce Mary. He was behaving correctly, according to what Jesus said. He thought, when he found out she was pregnant, he thought, ah, she's committed some kind of sexual sin. I can't go on with this. And he was going to break off the engagement that required a divorce. He was behaving correctly. But God sent the angel Gabriel to clear up the matter, letting him know Mary did not sin. She's holy, she's a virgin. Joseph believed God. By faith, he went ahead with the wedding. By the way, this is the definition of biblical faith. Faith is an obedient response to a revealed truth. It's not just what you think. It affects what you do. Faith is an obedient response to a revealed truth. Joseph might have said, yeah, I believe that, but I'm still not going to marry her. No. He believed, believed the angel Gabriel, and he went ahead and married Mary, and lived the rest of his life with everyone thinking that he must have been the father that they committed. There still would have been fornication, you see. So he, in Bible study, we've been talking about going outside the gate, outside the city to, to meet with Jesus, that we join him in his reproach, re rejected by the world. Well, Joseph did so before Jesus was born. He was reproached the rest of his life. Mary had that reproach the rest of her life. Everybody was sure that, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, that baby was started before you were married. Only Joseph and Mary knew the truth. So how you view marriage as a concept is going to affect how your marriage actually functions. If you, both husband and wife, see it as God sees it, you're going to find it a total blessing. 
as you work together in partnership with the living Christ. If you don't see it that way, nor choose to live that way, and yes, it does take two, I understand that, then to whatever degree you vary from his plan and purpose, the marriage is going to suffer accordingly. By the way, let me take a little bit of a parenthesis here. Uh, a lot of people condemn marriage to the point that they're condemning the people that were victims, excuse me, condemn divorce to the point of condemning the people who are victims of divorce. Uh, Pat James, the guy that founded this church, was forced into divorce by the state of California. His wife, I don't remember the exact ailment, uh, schizophrenic something, uh, I forget the exact name, but it was psychosis, I think. His wife had to be hospitalized permanently. They would not institutionalize her unless he divorced her. He couldn't pay for her institutionalization himself, and the only way he could get help for his wife was to divorce her. It broke his heart. That, he, he and she were both the victims of that divorce. They, they were not choosing to separate. And she died in that mental institution not, not too long after that. <clears throat> so yes, God recognizes both marriage and divorce and remarriage, according to the one we read in uh, John chapter 4. He said, you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. So she'd been divorced four times, five times, I guess, and remarried four. Okay? And God recognized all of them. He didn't approve of it, but he recognized it. He understands who we are. He sees through our frailty and understands who we are. So please don't get down on yourself if you've suffered from a divorce or if your mom and dad did or anything else. That's not the point here. The point is that marriage is supposed to work this way. And that when it's applied this way, it does work this way. See? Can I fail? You bet I can fail. Ask Ann. She might be kind enough to not tell you, but you know, I can be a crabby old man. Sometimes she says, I think you need a nap shot. Sometimes she says, I think you need to stop and eat, Chad. You're getting crabby. Okay. See, but our loving relationship can suffer if one of us is not doing so good. The world has long abandoned God's values and rejected them wholesale. So marriages worldwide and husband-wife relationships worldwide suffer everywhere in the world. We're to demonstrate the reality of Christ to the world through our marriages as well as through our spoken testimony and our overall behavior. All this stuff matters. This is a key example of what it means when Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love. And that was again, the agape love, John chapter 13, verse 35. If you have love, one for another. The love that others can observe in action between you and your spouse is one of the two criteria that Jesus gave to the world to judge the church. Really? Jesus gave the world permission to judge the church? You bet he did. He says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. The other one is unity. John chapter 21. He says that the world may know that thou hast sent me. To see the unity between believers is one of the messages to the world that, yes, Jesus is for real. You think about that. <clears throat> the love that others can observe in action between you and your spouse is one of those two criteria. How you respond to your husband or wife will proclaim to the world the nature of your relationship with Jesus. 
spend some time thinking about that. Let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, all of us desire to have fruitful lives. All of us desire to have peaceful, joyful, loving marriages. Grant us the wisdom to apply your word to our lives in such a way as to build that reality in our own lives. Make us the men and women you call us to be and enable us to be your servants and ambassadors in Jesus' name.